Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investment topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Chris Bloomstrand, Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic. A very warm welcome to everyone to another episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. We have a great episode ahead featuring a special guest today in Larry Cunningham. I'm sure everyone knows uh, Larry Cunningham, a corporate director, governance expert, professor. Uh, Larry and I recently uh, had the pleasure of discussing his book, Dear Shareholder. That conversation is available on the MOI Global website. And Phil Ordway is here as well, who will kind of steer the conversation with Larry, as uh, Phil has done a ton of work in the area of uh, corporate governance and capital allocation as well. And just a note, uh, Chris Bloomstrand and Elliot Turner are not here uh, this week. They'll join us again next week. So, Phil, I don't know if you want to um, introduce Larry a, li a little bit more, uh, although I'm sure he doesn't need uh, any introduction, so maybe you want to kick it off, but I'll turn it to you. Feel free to take it away. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. I'll say a few words and then I want to dive right into the conversation with Larry. So if anyone's not familiar, I, I assume most of you are, but um, Larry's career is really fascinating and something that I've come to appreciate even more in recent years. So uh, he, he started his, his career in, in academia after a career practicing law um, and has become one of the countries in the world's foremost experts on corporate governance. And, and we'll dive into the various angles of that. But for anyone who's missed the last few episodes, um, I've been leading kind of a side conversation about a topic that's been increasingly interesting to me in recent years. Um, and that's kind of this notion of the interplay of corporate governance and capital allocation and investor relations and how they all pull together. And this is something Larry and I have talked a lot about and something where he spent 10, 20, 30 years really um, enmeshing himself in that world and, and becoming one of the world's foremost experts and directly be uh, interacting with, I think, two of the single best examples you could possibly ask for, uh, namely Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway and Mark Leonard at Constellation Software. Um, so we'll get into quite a bit of that. If for anyone who's, who's not familiar, um, would highly encourage you to check out all of Larry's work. Just Google it. It's all out there. I think we're up to, what, 20 books now, Larry, something like that. Um, best known probably for the essays of Warren Buffett, where he, with Warren's explicit help and blessing, took the essays that he's written over 56 or seven years now and, and collated those all by topic, um, has written some other great books, uh, particularly about the value of culture, um, the value of communication, something we talked about in the investor relations uh, area. And uh, lately, one of the topics that, you know, his, his latest book, which will be coming out, I believe, later in October, is about quality shareholders. And the full title is Quality Shareholders, How the Best Managers Attract and Keep Them. Uh, he's also written a paper uh, that I think came out earlier this year, but certainly not too long ago. And the title of that is The Case for Empowering Quality Shareholders. So that's something I want to dive right into. And, and Larry, maybe you'd be you'd be better off certainly than I would sort of explaining what you mean by quality shareholders and, and then what your ideas entail for empowering them from there. Thanks, Phil. And thanks, John, for having me back on the program. By quality shareholders, I mean that small cohort of investors who have relatively long investment horizons and relatively high investment concentrations. 
and I just have a little two by two matrix in the materials where I relate horizon and concentration, and you'll recognize the uh, familiar categories. Uh, indexers tend to have long time horizons, but uh, virtually no um, concentration. Transients, short-term holders, may hold in large stakes, but never for long. And uh, both of them add something valuable to um, the ecosystem. Indexers enable ordinary investors to get the market return at virtually no cost or risk. Transients uh, add liquidity and, and, and help facilitate uh, deep capital markets. So uh, there's nothing against them. But the quality cohort, the group that both concentrates and holds for long periods, adds something very special that neither of them do, which is typically an, an understanding, a familiarity, and a resource uh, for corporations, as, as well as a stabilizing force in, in capital markets. So the idea of the of the research is to try to identify who those quality shareholders are, which companies tend to attract them, and why. And would you say would you say it's safe to believe that it's a mutually beneficial symbiotic kind of relationship? I mean, this is something that really hit me over the head in the past few years, which is that you know companies are very explicit and very uh, direct in targeting their lending group whether that's banks, bondholders, et cetera, they want to really make sure that their lenders understand what the company is up to, understand what their securities and protections are. It's a very direct, very intentional relationship. Whereas on the equity side, it's almost completely ignored. And I think, one, I'd like to hear you opine as to why so many companies completely ignore who owns their stock. And, and, and likewise, why so many companies actually explicitly encourage their stock to be turned over more. I mean, we've seen these stock splits come back in the news inexplicably in the past few weeks. Um, so I'd love to hear your, your take on that. And then secondarily, you know, what can both sides get from you know, that, that relationship that's beneficial? Yeah, I think you're right that corporate uh, managers tend to be much more consciously solicitous of, of their lenders with you know, active relationships and cultivation and so on, and certainly compared uh, to the equity. And it may simply be a perception that uh, it's, it's a smaller group. It's easier to uh, reach out. It's easier to uh, just, you know, stay in touch and, and, and uh, you know, things are contractual. So, the covenants, the the representations, the the, the entire arrangement is is fairly uh, spelled out, and so it's it may just seem easier. You know, equ- equity is a dispersed, uh, vast, uh, changeable, um, no contracts really uh, to speak of at all. Uh, so that's a sort of benign explanation. Another might be that uh, ma- managers, many of them anyway, uh, may be very happy if. They simply have a, a rising stock price, uh, whatever the underlying business value, whatever the relation uh, between price and value. And so they may not care if they have a particular sort of stockholder, so long as the stockholders as a group help to drive the price up. Uh, and certainly uh, indexers will tend to do that simply by being in the index. Uh, demand is generated for stock. Uh, and transients are, are sort of known for uh, you know, chasing prices up. Uh, so quality shareholders uh, will tend not to be so fixated on price, uh, certainly in the abstract or, or as, you know, something that's simply higher and higher and higher, but rather uh, some orientation towards a rational relationship between price and, and underlying business value. So 
for managers who, who just want the stock price to be high, they may not uh, care too much about whether they have many quality shareholders. So that's a more cynical um, explanation. But why should they care? What's in it for companies to have a higher density of quality shareholders? Well, the first point I'd make is that this is going to be a group that tends to be more uh, careful, more thoughtful, more engaged with a company, more willing to understand strategy, more willing to think uh, over multiple periods uh, rather than short periods of time. And that kind of group uh, does a lot of things for a company. First, it gives a, a team, a management team, a longer runway to execute on strategy without fixating on the rec- on the current quarter or, the, or even the current year, uh, but to give managers a little bit of a benefit of the doubt, a little bit of a runway to execute uh, on strategy. The second thing it does, it provides a resource in the ultimate case to uh, uh, to appoint uh, members of this cohort uh, to the board of directors or simply to have available as a, as a consultant, usually a cheaper or free consultant on uh, how strategies is being executed, whether a particular capital allocation decision is optimal uh, and so on. And, and look, ultimately when companies face difficult uh, cross intersections, uh, whether it's a, a major um, proxy battle, uh, you know, a, it's, you know, an item, a controversial item on the on the shareholder um, meeting agenda, whether it's on climate change or gender diversity or what have you, it helps to have informed, engaged patient stockholders to, to turn to, to make a case about what management's views are. So there, there are lots of, uh, I think, very very important and powerful reasons why it, it, it pays for a company and its managers to have a high density of long-term concentrated uh, shareholders. Uh, you know, you, you're going to have some indexers, you're going to have lots of transients, but there are lots of benefits for companies to to cultivating this cohort too. And, and, and many, you know, a lot of companies do. It's not as if they're all, it's a, a complete matter of indifference, but, but it is surprising. You're right, Phil, about how much more how many more resources the investor relations function allocates to cultivating the lenders uh, as opposed to the equity when, you know, I think it can be uh, often more important to have a, a reliable, stable shareholder base. Right. And to the extent they allocate any resources to the equity side, it seems to be all in the wrong places, either cultivating the sell side or encouraging sort of the transient owners that are just going to come in and out and come and go. But then, at least in my experience, when you really drill down on that, whether it's with the investor relations function directly or with the CFO or the CEO or even the board, they all voice frustration with how much time they waste on that function. I mean, I'll never forget meeting Mark Donegan right after Berkshire bought Precision Cast Parts. And he said he used to spend 20% of his time or one day out of every five just sort of flying around, meeting with, talking to, calling you know, the sell side in the quote unquote Wall Street community. And what a relief and what an unburdening it was for him to be rid of that. So it's just really odd and really frustrating to me that more companies don't see this as being in their best interest. So I wonder what you think about the best way to encourage this sort of change. Because if you and I and everyone all agrees that this is good for the companies, good for the shareholders, good for capitalism and the corporate world at large, why is it getting so little traction? And the only answer I've come up to is that we need to continue to speak more um, to interest rather than reason. So you've wrote, you've written recently about keeping the wolves away, which I think was your phrasing for the way Buffett has designed um, this function at Berkshire in, in the sense that he never wants to be subject to attack by a, a hostile takeover, an activist, some sort of proxy campaign that he thinks is contrary to the long-term interests of the company. So is, is that the best way to go about this is in interacting with companies to say, look, that if you don't 
fix this, someone will come along and fix it for you and really try to put the fear in them that way? That's certainly a good illustration. And I like, like your, your premise that uh, appealing to rational self-interest is, is usually the most persuasive strategy to, to, to you know, get people to change their, their behavior. And yes, I think pointing out to managers the, the advantages, you know, some of them that I just referred to about having a brain trust, having a, a runway for strategic execution. And, and your point on the, on the wolves away, I mean, one of the, one of the empirical points that, that I, I tried to do in the book, I, 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 I try to make the book as empirical as possible. I mean, I, I try to investigate the, you know, which, which uh, particular investors have these qualities, which companies tend to attract them and, and why. Uh, and then I look at the performance of, of the investors and, and the investees. And, uh, and, and one of the things I drilled into was to what extent can the existence of a high density of quality shareholders influence the outcome of activist campaigns? And I identified a number of examples, and some of them are pretty prominent, where an activist uh, approached a, a, a target with a um, you know a whole whole list of, of uh, problems that needed fixing and and the, the exact uh, business plan and business case uh, and and that one of the things that that quite a few of these companies turned around and did is so well, let me let me call my quality shareholders let me call my you know three percent twelve year holders and see what they think and uh, in, in in numerous cases that cohort uh, sided with management and as a group, in effect, uh, was able to resist uh, the activist overture. If those companies didn't have that uh, that group that would listen and understand, uh, they'd have been turned out. And, uh, you know, and you see uh, activist campaigns, you know, some Look, some activist campaigns are, are dead on, and, and you know there's there's a, a troubled management that that needs a boost. Uh, but there are other campaigns where it's sort of a head scratcher, where management lost, but you know, it looked like they had the better better case. So uh, so appealing to self interest. I mean, Warren's phrase about keep keeping the wolves away. I think that uh, the long story at Berkshire is precisely that the the reason. That Berkshire was a, a you know no activist investor has ever uh, made a run at or even close to, to at, at Berkshire. One of the reasons is Warren's halo and his ownership, but a huge reason is virtually all the stockholders are quality stockholders, and and, and they wouldn't defer to to an activist. But uh, a lot of companies don't have that kind of. Uh, support and uh, it, it can be decisive. It's been decisive in in a few cases. So I I, I think you're right, Phil. I, and I think that uh, you know the other thing they can do, the managers. I mean, you know how how do you you know Radigan is right. You know many CEOs spend a day a week um, you know just kind of soothing uh, transients and indexers, and it it is a, a treadmill and, and it wastes a lot of time. And you know and, and you know, one thing you'll hear the CEOs say is that. In so many cases, they go back quarterly to the same large uh, in funds, and none of the analysts are the same. The, the, the people who are, are following the company uh, change all the time. Or in, in the right. case of indexers, there isn't even anybody really following. So it's ex- extremely frustrating. You know, they've got to just try to, you know, it's hard to do, but it's trying to avoid the um, behaviors that 
tend to really attract those transients. Uh, the, I think the biggest one that we that we're able to document are, are quarterly forecasts, uh, quarterly guidance, and then the quarterly calls. Uh, it's a huge time suck, and it, it tends to focus uh, the whole team on short-term quarterly results, and that attracts the, that attracts the, the quarterly focused holders. So, giving up that kind of um, of conduct uh, would, would help. And we, we've got evidence that show, and we're not, I mean, my research and, and research of many others shows that uh, companies that suspend quarterly guidance or quarterly calls uh, do tend to increase the average holding period of their shareholder base. So, um, I mean, another example I, I would list is, is avoiding stock splits. Uh, this is in the news recently because Apple and Tesla have both in, uh, signaled an intention to split their stock because it's, you know, they're both at, at runaway highs. And, you know, I don't want to opine on the particulars there, but there is clear evidence that the uh, companies that have very high stock prices, many of them with the four digit stock prices, have a far higher density of quality shareholders that this group with long term uh, conviction. And, uh, and it's for obvious reasons, uh, if you, one of the reasons Apple and Tesla want to split the stock is they they want to have a, more shareholders buy it, and that's also going to mean more shareholders selling it. And so, you know, Berkshire is obviously the extreme example with a six-figure stock price. But um, and you know, so none of those companies with the four figures have uh, have a history or a pattern of stock splitting. And so, so there are things that managers can do. Uh, you know, we're going we're to lay them all out in the book and, and really try to provide a bit of a roadmap for, for companies um, to who, who are interested in, in, in shifting their shoulder base a bit to, you know, what, what strategies they might adopt. So one other thing that I've been uh, working on, you and I talked about this as well. I did sort of a poor man's study of the S&P 500 just to find companies that had some sort of structural element to address this, whether it was financial capital allocation or investor relations in the governance sense of it. And the short answer is that very few bordering on statistically zero companies have a a structural component of that to their board of directors. So I wonder what you think about, you know, making that change. So I don't suggest that it maybe should be required. And I'm very wary of, you know, less is more. You don't want to make more bureaucracy just for its own sake. But do you think it would be effective to make an explicit focus on that at the board level? And whether you call it a, a finance and capital committee or a capital allocation committee or an investor relations committee or something like that, because the, the default answer is always that, oh, that's a responsibility of the governance committee or, oh, that's a responsibility of some other committee. And it just seems to fall through the cracks too often. So do you think that's overkill or do you think that would be helpful? I think you make an excellent point, uh, Phil, and I, I agree entirely. I think capital allocation is a practice or a philosophy that quality shareholders understand well and care a great deal about. And uh, managers who get that and who res- who respond by explaining their uh, philosophy of capital allocation, their approach to allocating each corporate dollar will attract quality shareholders in higher density. That's an important uh, theme that connects uh, the two uh, communities. Uh, and therefore, I think you're right that companies that want to signal a conviction that capital allocation is important, that how, how each dollar is allocated is really their job, their, their, their responsibility to think about it, explain it, uh, and measure the effectiveness of each uh, deployment uh, is, a, is a terrific way to attract share, uh, quality shareholders. And if 
uh, it was a formal expression. So a board committee, that's the capital allocation committee, or as you say, the finance committee, the name isn't, isn't as important, but that there's a group that actively develops the company's uh, thoughts on how much, how do we think about reinvesting in existing businesses? What's our uh, internal rate of return on on acquisitions? What's our policy? At what point do we make buybacks? What's our approach to dividends? And and really had a systematic, rational uh, account. You know, it's it's fluid and so on, but but just that they embrace this this approach to thinking about their their job, what they're doing as a as a corporate entity. So I think that would be um, a, an easy thing, as long as they, they it can't be window dressing. You can't right, just, right. just have the rope. Um, and I'd flip it around and say, why are your, your S&P, the poor man's, that's a funny concept, the poor man's research on the S&P 500. And, and I remember talking to you about that and you found very few that have such a thing. Um, and I went and looked at the few that did and they do have, they're in the high, the, the, the higher density of, of shareholder. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, so what you, what you saw instead is almost every company has the same three board committees, the audit committee, the comp committee, and the governance committee. And and you, we could step back and say, why, why are those three? Well, most of it is because of uh, systemic uh, reasons, not firm specific reasons, but, but general things. So audit committees, obviously the finance, the, the accounting function is extremely important, but but after it, it's really a Sarbanes-Oxley thing that every company has to have an audit committee. Right. Uh, the comp committee is in, in part because of Dodd-Frank, which, which puts some policing around it, but in, in part because of executive compensation just got so, so um, explosive and, and, um, and kind of out of control. And then the governance committee, it's, it's really a large function of the increasing power that index, index funds assumed over the past 30 or so years. And they've, they've just put a lot of pressure on, on that function around, uh, you know, formal aspects of board service, such or board structure, like the number, the diversity, frequency of meetings, attendance, attendance at meetings, and, and, and so on. And all of that, it, you know, all, all that may be important, finance, comp, and governance. But I, I agree with you. I think the most important uh, job on the board hiring and firing a CEO, but is, is assuring that there is thoughtfulness around strategy and, and capital allocation. And so it is sort of funny uh, that we have these other big, big time-consuming committees and, and less, uh, less conscious uh, commitment to what is probably the most important function. And it's certainly the most important function for, for the quality shareholder group. Yeah, and that's the that's kind of the problem, which I think you would know this better than than I would, and better than almost anyone certainly is that when you're involved with a great company like Constellation Software, this is not necessary. I think when you raised this issue with Mark Leonard, his comment was was well, wait, we don't need a committee. It's at the core and the essence of every single thing that we do, and he's right. So I'm not in favor of mandating this and creating more work and more bureaucracy because inevitably you're going to have companies like Constellation and Berkshire that are already high performing, already doing all the right things. You don't want to force some unnecessary change down their throat, but it gets back to kind of this existential question of for the companies that are in the 99% that don't already have those that kind of culture in place, how do you go about changing that culture without making the structural reforms? Or maybe the answer is 
that's why this is so hard. And, and you, you know, you can't change the culture and, and you're just kind of back to the drawing board and without some sort of external forcing mechanism or just having some light bulb moment at the CEO or the board level, you're just kind of stuck. I mean, how do we solve that sort of chicken and egg problem? Yeah, the, the company the companies have to want to do it, and and they're and and my, our audience, my, my audience, and I think your your audience is is principally managers who have at least some willingness to understand uh, the, the the points we're trying to make. That, that the idea of attracting committed, long term shareholders who are become essentially business partners and and who will help around um, thinking about what is the what should be the highest priority. Uh, in inside the company, so that, that's the the primary audience. Managers are open minded to thinking about this. There are other managers who who for whom it, it would be, you know, just to be frank, you know, a waste of our time to try to explain this. Uh, it, it, not something they're interested. In. They want a high stock price and you know and high net income or high earnings uh, and and good uh, stock option results um, or, or other kinds of perks of you know, having large company uh, to run and, and, and you know, all the glamour of, of the position. And so getting through to them is, 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 is uh, you know, I'm not going to really spend my, my time trying to do it. But I think there's, you know, a meaningful percentage of, of corporate America uh, where the managers would uh, be open to the, this conversation and then would, would discover that they might benefit from it. And then uh, begin to lead uh, the the the, uh, the internal charge towards uh, prioritizing long-term uh, uh, stockholders, uh, you know, who who really focus on the company, and um, you know, and who would who would appreciate that the, the the company is now trying to think about capital allocation in a rational way and has recruited a board of directors that understands this idea uh, and are and are focused on it. Uh, and you're right at, at Berkshire and Constellation, and you know, we will there are 30 or 50 other other companies that we could add to the list. It's already Im- embedded in, in the culture, and maybe because it's Warren or Mark or the other CEOs, but you know it's it's usually a, a deep bench of people who who's who's you know who appreciate that what we're doing is deploying equity capital, shareholders' capital. And uh, the idea is to deploy that uh, at, at high rates of return over very long periods. And so whether uh, we reinvest in the existing you know, product base, whether we uh, make an act, you know, a tuck in or a, or a bolt on or a, 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 you know, a move into a new area or return the capital to the holders. In some ways, it, every decision at the company is, um, is a capital allocation decision. Uh, and you're right. That's what Mark quipped when I when I raised your idea with him that you know we we can't really have a capital allocation committee at Constellation because that's that's basically everything we do. You know we we have an audit committee too, but but uh, uh, all all the important strategic uh, issues in front of the board are, are ultimately capital allocation issues. Yeah, and that, like I said, I think that's a big part of why Constellation's been so successful. And there's no point in making them reinvent the wheel, which is why I don't favor necessarily a a Sarbanes-Oxley style mandate for it, although that might have some good consequences despite some some drawbacks to it. But I do think one thing that'll that'll help in this direction is is a book like this, frankly, because I can't wait to send this book to many CEOs and board members that I know, because I, I'm hopeful, maybe I'm naive in this, but I'm hopeful that there are enough CEOs and board members out there that 
feel this pull in this direction, but they just don't have either the institutional support or the quantifiable um, empiric evidence that they can rely on or just don't, they need something to get over the inertia to, to force this change. And, you know, I think another good example of it might be Will Thorndike's great book, The Outsiders. I know countless investors and, and CEOs and board members have interacted over that book and it's been a real touch point. And I think on balance, it's been a huge positive for for corporate function and, and for, for corporate governance. And I really think this book can, can play the same role. Um, what else do you think we can do as investors other than, than, you know, buying a lot of copies of this book and sending it around? <laughs> Thanks, Bill. And I, I, I concur about Will Thorndike's book. I, it's, it's an outstanding book. Uh, he, he really poured his heart and soul into that for a long time. And it's, it's wonderful that it's had such a positive uh, effect. Um, and, you know, and he's now led the, um, a foundation to give an annual award to the, the, the best capital allocator. And, right, and so right. I think that's a, yeah, uh, say it again. Yeah, I said that's right. Yeah, yeah, Singleton, I think. Uh, yeah. And so um, it's, I think, uh, worth worth stressing too is is that I, you know, I think his his audience and my audience and maybe yours is a, it's almost a self selected group. I mean, again, the CEO's got to have a, a, a you know an open mind and be willing to to embrace what is in some ways an investor's point of view and. I, you know, CEOs don't always come up that way. Uh, they come up with engineering or, or product or customer service or, or finance and so on. And so they don't, they don't always sort of think about the owner's point of view uh, and, and the ideas that Will was putting forth and the managers who em- embrace them are thinking about the, um, uh, the business from the owner's point of view. And so they're thinking about how every dollar is allocated. Um, and I think to your point about you know, not 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 imposing it, not mandating. I agree with you entirely because I, you know, I think one of the things is that each each company's um, menu, it, what will work for them is is going to be a little different. Uh, and so, I prefer an idea where companies, managers, and companies who want to get the benefits of cultivating quality shareholders self-select and and signal that this this is something we. Are taking seriously and that, that we would like to to do and then they signal that to the marketplace and and this group uh responds and you'll get you'll get the good returns i mean other this is this will ultimately be performance driven i mean when i we turned around and looked at the performance of the the quality shareholder cohort as investors and then the company the the economic performance of the companies that tend to attract them they not in every case but as a, they tend to outperform so Having this approach is economically rational, and I think if we can educate enough CEOs uh, and boards in this uh, approach and this philosophy, and it's embraced uh, uh, by them, I, I think that would be the reward. And, and so, I think just just what Will did uh, uh, and what you and I are doing, uh, I think is is that's the action step. Uh, and I don't think we can expect you know to do more uh i mean our our megaphones are limited i mean this is my estimate is that the quality shareholder cohort represents about 15 percent ownership of uh, of public equity so the indexing world commands uh, about 40 the transient group another 40 and and activists at various times a total of around of around five 
so it's it's a relatively small group uh, with less uh, political clout and less you know visibility and so on, but uh, but it can be a decisive one. And so I think uh, just trying to share that message, share that point of view, is is, is probably the at, at least the practical um, view and, and goal that that I'm setting. One other thing I want to circle back on that you mentioned earlier that I hadn't thought about um, with regard to the lending side and, and bank groups and bond owners is the contractual element of it. And I hadn't thought about that, but that's really interesting. And I still want to think more about why that would have a lot more of a two-way relationship. I mean, I get it that you want to understand what's in the indenture or what's in the credit agreement, but maybe it would help. I mean, supposing you're right, and that it does make a lot of sense to me, supposing you're right, I mean, one way to increase the relationship on the equity size and encourage uh, quality shareholding uh, would be to increase the structural, almost contractual element of it. Now, obviously, you're not going to have a contractual agreement to buy and sell stock like you do to you know, come in and out of a bank group uh, or something like that. But one thing that I've also been a big fan of and a big proponent of is the concept of an owner's manual. Obviously, again, that came out of Berkshire Hathaway and they have an explicit one. There's a handful of other companies that have one. Morningstars is excellent. Um, Google and Alphabet have a version of it. Uh, Constellation certainly adheres to that philosophy and, and has its own version of an owner's manual. But here again, it's just a great opportunity where every owner's manual by definition would have to be different and completely tailored to that specific company. But just the process of creating one is enormously helpful. And having done this and, and helped Alaska go through it, I mean, it, to their enormous credit, they put in a huge amount of work and really made enormous progress. And we're on the cusp of rolling this out right when the pandemic hit. And it's just ironic and enormously sad um, that they, this, their attention had to go elsewhere for now. Um, but the, the process of doing that was both enormously helpful for them. And unfortunately, now we have to wait and see, but I think would have been enormously helpful in cultivating their shareholder base and steering it away from people that were using airlines as a macro hedge or an oil hedge or, or just a trading sardine where they're jumping in and out of things and really encouraging a longer term view of the company. So, you know, there again, I, I don't know that it's something that should ever be mandated. I'd be very hesitant to see it be a check the box requirement for large shareholders to say, you know, we're not going to own your stock unless you publish an owner's manual, something like that, that would come with a lot of unintended consequences as well. But just wonder what your thoughts are uh, on the concept of an owner's manual and how we could maybe push that forward as well. I think it's an excellent idea. And, uh, you know, and, and I agree with you too, that each, each company's owner's manual would need to be different. But I can also suspect that that many should have the kinds of at least some of the tenants in the Berkshire one uh, start with the, something that does indeed feel contractual in Berkshire. So I think it's the, the first one that says we feel like we're partners. Right. Uh, this is not you know a traditional corporate hierarchy where we're we're uh, uh, helping ourselves to uh, corporate resources that that you don't share in. Um, it's a flat partnership. And if, if I gain a dollar, so do you. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's funny when he said that, uh, Warren wrote in the owner's manual that Berkshire's attitude is partnership. If some of my law friends thought, you know, it doesn't take much to form a partnership. And him having said that might mean it is a partnership. And that imposes certain significant legal duties on, on Warren. So, I mean, and that expresses what we were just talking about around how I, I think the idea of focusing on capital allocation is very much an owner-oriented idea. 
You know, and so tenant number one in the owner's manual might might in, indicate what's our view of the um, legal relationship or the you know the, the the relational aspect of this operation. Is it corporate and hierarchical? Is it is it, is it more like partnership? Um, I mean, another one that jumps out at me is I think it's his second one that, that the directors and and the managers have a significant portion of their net worth in Berkshire stock. I think that's an extremely important uh, element of the owner's manual. It's an alignment uh, point, obviously. And it's not just what percentage of the company they own, but what portion of their net worth is at stake. Um, Something that is almost never stressed uh, in corporate America, but it's, it's probably the most important thing. Uh, you know, it's a it's a sense of being a quality director. That is, you, know, you have a, a concentrated portion of your of your net worth in it. And so, I, I do think that uh, an owner's manual is a good idea, and I, I think it it ought to be tailored to the um, particular uh, business. But we'd have some features I think we'd we'd see in common. In fact, Phil, I mean, one one way to read the in effect, the table of contents to to my book and this research that, that you've been doing is that it, here are 20 levers or, or practices or policies that corporations have used that are associated with attracting high quality shareholders. Uh, and so study these 20 features and then evaluate which of these do seem to make sense for your company, whether it's a partnership attitude, high um, director investment or, or something else, you know, no stock splits, no quarterly calls, uh, rational capital allocation, a capital allocation committee, whatever it might be. Uh, and, and then uh, make that case, make that statement as Morningstar has done. You know, I, I'd, I'd support that that kind of thing. And, and I'd, I'd stress, too, it doesn't. Warren took it to the, the formal extreme in that he, he wrote it all down, explained it, uh, updates it, puts it on the website. It's, it's, a, it's a very textual, formal statement. You know, Constellation doesn't have that uh, formal statement, but there's just no question about its emphasis on the long term, on uh, product innovation, on um, uh, capital allocation, on um, developing its its people. Um, why is there no question? Well, part of it is because Mark explained that. Mark Leonard, the CEO, uh, explained that in, in annual letters that were very uh, thick, thoughtful, and, and, and engaging. Uh, he makes those, uh, the whole team makes those points at, at the annual meetings. It now fields, the company fields questions um, uh, um, that are submitted by shareholders throughout the year. And so it's, but we've ne- it's never been written down, uh, and I think the, the the culture at Constellation is a much more non-textual. Uh, that it's uh, there's a lot of shared practices, shared knowledge. Uh, you know, there's we, we talk about there being a playbook and stuff, but it's not written down anywhere. It's not codified anywhere. It's it's an oral history, if you like. It's, and so there are different ways to to adopt this approach, adopt this um, this owner's manual. That, and I think. You know, Warren did it in a very formal way. Mark has done it in a much more informal way. And I think, again, uh, in the spirit of self-selection or flexibility, I'd, I'd leave it to if the company and its current sort of uh, leadership and outlook about whether they'd prefer to have it all all written out in a very formal way or, or rather more expressed periodically and, and as a more of a living kind of uh, tradition. Right, right. And that's a great point. And on the self-selection 
issue or maybe put differently that we're all kind of preaching to the choir here. I've always been somewhat skeptical that you can really change the culture, um, particularly once it's ingrained for good or for worse. Uh, it generally is coming from the top. It's very difficult to change. I think we've all seen that both anecdotally and in the data that it's very difficult to achieve that. So it gets to this issue of what's realistic here. And one of the questions I got when I solicited some questions in advance for this was, is this concept of a quality shareholder really just code or another way of saying that a quality business or put differently, even a quality a quality management team is just attracting the shareholders it deserves, i.e. that there's nothing that can be done or changed here. And this is all just sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy because Warren Buffett and Mark Leonard are great business leaders and therefore they were going to get what they deserve and all the rest of this stuff is just kind of pomp and circumstance. So wonder what your response to that would be. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that uh, you're, you're right. Culture is sticky. It's, it's all about behavior and the norms that are, that are percolating in a, in a system and that could be a, a company, a school or society or what have you. And so it's extremely hard to change. Uh, it's it's defined by the leadership uh, in, in both Berkshires and Constellations case, effectively by the founder, uh, who then then leads a team uh, that uh, ultimately has a bit of a, a almost a Darwinian self-selection where people who aren't on that same cultural page leave. Uh, so that's all true. Uh, on the specific question about um, how to describe this, you know, identifying quality shareholders and, and thinking about quality businesses, it's a more rigorous uh, first cut, at least we, you know, the first step in this is empirically to identify those funds, those investors that have the longest average holding period. And, and in our research, we, we try to identify that using lots of different uh, little little tests. I, I explain them all in an appendix to, to the book, but to long average holding periods and in high concentration. Uh, so the opposite of the indexer. And so we, we, empirically and kind of rigorously statistically identify who are these these holders and then using the same approach we we figure out which companies attract such uh holders in 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 high density uh and so it, and and then you know it, it might be the case that he's the questioner is right by saying well uh, it's not surprising these companies get the shareholders they deserve. So the companies that do certain things attract high quality shareholders and they get them. Uh, companies who don't, you know, are stuck with the transients and, and the indexers. So it, it might be that when we do the empirical research, we're discovering what you might have thought you already knew. But nevertheless, when you look down the list, so I've got 2,070 companies that I list out on a high to low density of quality shareholders. You know, and a bunch of them, especially the ones toward the bottom, they don't care about what we're talking about. And so the questioner is right. But those in the middle and, and at the top, you know, they'll say, yeah, I'd really like to have, you know, more shareholders that are sticking around a long time who who load up on, on our stock and I, I can talk to and, and count on. And so, I, you know, and, and they can be educated and helped uh, to, to do this. So I don't think it's. You know, I, I think the reader's right. The questioner is, is right that, uh, you know, managers get the shareholders they deserve. Uh, and I, I, that was a subtitle of the book at one point, I think. Um, but the, the idea is that, that there may be managers right now who'd love to have more quality shareholders, but they're, they're, it's a minority group. You know, they're 15 percent of, of, of the population um, in, in, you know, in terms of ownership. I mean, they're, they're just, you know, maybe just a few hundred of the 
the the real uh, you know sizable uh, groups that you can attract. So I think that there there I'll bet there are some managers who deserve a higher density of quality shareholders and just haven't thought about it or um, haven't inventoried the mechanisms. Uh, and so that's I think the purpose of of this research and and of your work is to say these managers you know you can improve the quality of your shareholder base. I mean, I think, I don't think you're going to, you're not going to fool anybody. I don't, you're going to, you're not, you're still going to get the ones you deserve. So I don't right. think, I don't think mediocre managers or, or managers who put their own pockets ahead of the holders are going to uh, uh, get a high density of quality shareholders. Uh, but I'll bet they're, they're conscientious owner oriented managers who, who for various reasons aren't getting uh, uh, enough for the ones they deserve and that they, they could, they could improve uh, their base by at least thinking about some of the strategies that you and I are talking about. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And it's one thing that also kind of hit me over the head in this process, along with the the explicit cultivation of a lending group and the explicit, you know, or the the lack of doing so for the equity side was that, and there's no way to quantify this, but my strong argument would be that over the last 10, 20, and 30 years that corporate managers, corporate executives have upped their game. I think the the average, however you want to define the average or median, let's say S&P 500 or Fortune 500 company today is better managed than it was a few decades ago. And that manifests itself in all sorts of different ways. But then you look a little bit into the little pockets and one area that still just seems stuck in the dark ages is this concept that the, the, the governance, inter- investor relations, capital allocation, three-legged stool that we've been talking about. And that's just what's so mind-boggling to me is we have you know our world-leading companies right now still splitting their stock to increase the transient percentage of their shareholders when there's already plenty of them to begin with just sort of boggles the mind. And so as, as I've watched with fascination as the ESG movement has really gained steam in the past few years, and, and largely for good reason, just like the passive indexation revolution has gained steam for, for many years for mostly good reason, it seems to me that of the E, S, and G, the one area that could make the most difference would be the G. That seems to be getting the, the least attention right now. But I wonder what your thoughts are, and then I'll turn it back to John, is just if you had to take glass half full, glass half empty, do you think corporate governance writ large is getting better right now, getting worse, or are we still just kind of stuck in the mud and going nowhere? I think overall there, there's been a excessive tendency to impose one size fits all ordering, whether it's to uh, separate the chair and CEO function, whether mm-hmm. to have a, a certain size of, of board or those certain committees that, that we talked about, certain um, tenure limits or numbers of board limits. We, you know, you look down the institutional shareholder services annual manual that they come out with, they're just 40 or 50 just rules that every company has to have or they get a bad uh, grade or withhold votes on on directors and, and it just so I, I think we've gotten too uh, systematic and and not fir- uh, firm specific enough and, and I do think that's a problem and I think it's a it's a place I mean one, one of the reasons for that is because of index investing it's it's impossible for BlackRock Vanguard State Street, uh, or even smaller indexers uh, to follow every company that they invest in or to make a judgment that, well, here the chair and the CEO ought to be different, or, or here uh, these directors ought to be able to stay on beyond, say, 10 years, or, or here it's it's okay to have three insiders or something. So um, that's my chief uh, critique of the prevailing uh, system. 
and I think the, the other point that you make, um, I think is a very, very important uh, point around uh, the, the indexers is that the ESG is, you know, it, it is too focused, if, if you like, on, on environmental and social social matters, important as, as, as those may be. They, they tend to be easier to uh, generalize that, that we ought to you know, have, you know, look at, at, at this, your carbon footprint or your CO2 emissions. And then and, and, and here's where you need to be or the social aspects around uh, diversity or promotion or, or so on. Uh, and, and they've been overemphasized. And, and so I, I'd like to see uh, even those indexers to the extent they, they're able to do that, uh, to focus a little bit more on 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 governance variation. They, they claim to be doing it. All the big three have said, well, we're hiring more people to go out and, and interact with individual companies and to try to make individualized judgments. Uh, but still, the staffing is is just slight you know, compared to the, the, the number of in, investees uh, that they have. Yeah, right. I agree. And I think to that point, if you get the governance right and you really cultivate this culture of long-term ownership, it will eliminate a lot of the problems you have on the social or even the environmental front. So I think it just is kind of a, a panacea to the extent such a thing exists. So um, anyway, I just can't uh, compliment you enough for your work on this on this topic. It's fascinating to me. I think it's the, the way of the future. And uh, I know the book's not out yet, but the paper certainly is. And uh, I think both will be a, a huge resource for for years to come. So thank you for, for all your time and work on that and for sharing your thoughts with us here. It's greatly appreciated. Um, if, Phil, I can, if I could just say one more thing. I mean, your, your point about the improvement of managerial uh, sophistication or professionalism over the last 30 or 40 years, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And it, it might be that this topic is, 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 is the last one uh, you know, that needs, yeah. needs improvement. I, and I think it's it's partly because the data, uh, you know, haven't haven't been there. I mean, I think people have an intuition that a a high quality shareholder base may help a company. That it's just some intuition that if, if the, the stockholders matter, uh, but it's never been quantified. It's never been systematically investigated. And I think what you uh, have begun to do, and what I'm trying to do, uh, is is uncover, you know, turn that stone and try to say. Um, Yes, we, we can measure this, and and the intuition is 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 supported by the data, and, and so I think that's going to be an important contribution to this work too. Agreed. Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Larry and Phil, uh, for this fascinating conversation. Uh, it's a incredibly important topic. Uh, and again, uh, for those of you who may not be aware, uh, Larry and I spoke about his book recently, and I'd encourage you to. Uh, go find that conversation as well. Uh, we will be back next week with uh, Phil, Elliot, and Chris. Until then, goodbye, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.